Thank you, Neil. You guys can take a seat. Um, this week, you get a different bald guy than the normal bald guy. Uh, David is in Mexico enjoying some uh, good R&R. It's much needed for him, for Rachel. Um, so we'll just, we're happy that he's able to take this time to be with uh, his wife in a beautiful place. And, but you get me. So um, it'll be good. So this week, we are taking just a slight detour, just a slight one. Um, from the sermon series that we've been in, in the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. But it still fits within the overarching theme of what this series is, which um, the series is about God bringing us and people from darkness into dawn, or bringing us out of darkness into the light. Uh, and so this account is actually the account of one particular woman in the Old Testament where she has a darkness moment and she comes into dawn. This is the account of the Shunammite woman and the promise of her son, uh, which this takes place, as you heard, in the time of the prophet Elisha, uh, which is around 861 to 858 BC of this particular account here. Um, Elisha, just like the prophet Elijah, was actually a foreshadowing character or a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. Many of the, uh, the miracles that Elisha performed, we actually see Jesus performing in even greater numbers in the New Testament. So this is kind of the backdrop of where we're picking up. Um, we're going to go through the entire account of the Shunammite woman. It's about 29 verses, so there's a lot to get through, but buckle up. It'll still be good. All right, so we're going to start in uh, verse 8 uh, through 10. We're going to go at this first chunk. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls, and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go. Um, he can go in there. He can rest. So, we see here that this is an incredibly generous woman, um, and in the ESV it translates as she was a wealthy woman. Um, the actual Hebrew word here is great. She was a great woman, and the New American Standard Version actually has a closer translation of she was a prominent woman. So it wasn't that she just had wealth. It was she actually had great status, and she was prominent within the community of Shunem. So not only was she prominent, but as I said, she was actually incredibly generous. She was so generous that just the generous act of trying to invite Elisha into a meal actually turned into an open-door policy for him to come in at any time to eat, and to be taken care of. But then that generosity is amplified even more as time goes by. She asks her husband, let's build an actual room in our house. And at this time, they would have actually built on top of the house, so they just would have kept going up. But let's build a room for him to stay, and we'll furnish it. Put a bed, lamp, bed stand, the whole nine yards. He's got it all. 
And so for us in today's day, we could look at like a mother-in-law suite um, where you have that extra space, that extra living, living space for someone to completely have on, all to their own or like an ADU. Incredible generosity. I know I don't have the means and maybe not the generosity to just completely build David his own living space in my house. <laughs> I'm not that great. But you see, what makes this uh, even more amazing is actually the time period that this is taking place in. Uh, we're in this is in Kings, and at the time, uh, the kingdom has split. So Judah is in the south, Israel is in the north. And while Judah has had good kings that have been reigning over them during the split after Solomon, Israel was not so fortunate. Israel actually had evil king after evil king after evil king, constantly pursuing the worship of, of other gods rather than the one true God. And many believe if you, if you do the timeline, taking into account the Hebrew timeline or the Hebrew calendar, not just our ADBC calendar, uh, many believe this was actually in the time of the king Ahab, which if you're familiar Ahab was, as scripture said, the most evil king Israel had seen. This takes place in the time of uh, Elisha and Jezebel where they have the feuding, uh, I guess, uh, this is how big my yardstick is between Baal, their god, and the one true god. It takes place around this time. So Elisha was under still Elisha's tutelage as becoming the next prophet. In verse 11, one day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested. And he said to Kahazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, so Elisha said to Gehazi, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. You've built us an entire separate room on your house. You furnished it. You fed us. You've taken so much trouble for us. What is to be done for you? What can we do for you? See, hi, baby. See, we can go on behalf of the king for you. We can speak to the king, or we can talk to the commander of the army. What can we do for you? And I love her response right here. I dwell among my people. This is not going to be the first time where we're going to see Gehazi serving as a go-between between Elisha and the Shunammite woman. But the humility that she displays is so inspiring. See, most people, at least I know I probably would, is if I was given the opportunity to be presented in front of a very prominent person within our, within our region or within our nation, uh, yeah, I'd probably take it to be able to meet someone prominent or of great influence. But she rejects the offer. She simply says, I dwell among my people. I'm good. I'm good with where I'm at. I have everything that I need. I'm content 
with the status among my people. You know, in many ways, we should, we should act like the Shunammite woman in this moment. She's not pursuing a blessing. She's actually just pursuing the blesser. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Elijah responded, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about the time the following spring, just as Elijah had said to her. So now we finally see that at the issuing of the promise and the prophecy, now she's actually being addressed by Elisha himself. And this woman's situation was like so many other women's situation that we read in the Old Testament. You have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Mikhail. But her response is different than what their responses were. When presented all those other women of what they would want, they said, I want a child. They were barren, husbands were old. And in this society at the time, not having a child was like a mark on your social status. It's like, ooh, you can't have a kid? Something wrong with you. But she just says, no, I dwell among my people when first offered something. She could have just asked outright after that first offering, like, you know what? I really want a child. And while she didn't ask for the child, her response would most certainly indicate that it is something she so desired. No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Do not give me a promise of something that I've wanted so desperately for all my life. The thing that I am missing, don't lie to your servant. But the promise comes to pass, just as Elisha said. What she had longed for for so long had been given. Some of us might have longings in our life um, or promise that the Lord has given to us. Just think on that for a second. If there's a promise that the Lord has given you, you're going to think on it. Because we're going to see this story turn um, in a very heartbreaking way. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. 
And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. One life lesson, dads. Let's be a little bit more attentive to our children (laughs) than what this father was. Uh, If your kid has something wrong, uh, be attentive. Take care of it. Don't just say, go to your mother. (laughs) It's okay. As dads, we can be uh, caring too. So we can be attentive. But carry him to his mother. And when he had, when uh, the servant had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Approximately five years would have passed between the path, the fulfillment of the promise, until this moment, and then the boy becomes ill with likely would have been heat stroke in that region. He was spending time with his dad. The servant takes him to the mom, and he dies in her lap. Can you imagine that pain of holding the thing that you've longed for for so long? The promise that you felt or that you were seeing having come to pass. No more. Right in your lap. The promise that was given dies within her very lap. But her response to this is incredible. When she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may go quickly to the man of God and come back again. And he said, he he has no clue what's happening. Not a clue. Why will you go to him today? Today is not, it's neither the new moon or the Sabbath. Today is not the day to go bring a burnt offering to the man of God. Why? It makes no sense. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So when she set out and came to the man of God on Mount Carmel. So even in such a horrific situation, where the promise is died in her very lap. She displays such a level of calmness and a level of faith that is absolutely tremendous. She takes her dead son up to the room in which they built for Elisha, the man of God, and laid him on the bed. She was not preparing for a funeral. She was not preparing for the promise to be gone. This level of faith that she displays extends even to her husband when when he asks why she is going to see Elisha. 
when it's not the time to bring an offering. And the New American Translation actually translates it as this. It will be well. It will be well. And just to help, I I like some of these nerdy facts, but to put it in perspective, Shunem is kind of in the northern part of the Kingdom of Israel. Mount Carmel is towards the Mediterranean Sea. Mount Carmel was about 20 miles west of uh, the village of Shunem. Today, we're like, ah, that's not too bad. 20 miles, get my car, I'll be there in like 15, 20 minutes if I'm on the freeway. But she's taking a donkey. She doesn't have my Honda Pilot. (laughs) She's on a donkey that at most will go 15 miles per hour. And donkeys aren't built for running. (laughs) They're slow. They have a lot of endurance where they go long paces at a slow pace. Just do not slow down for my account. So even at 15 miles per hour, it would have taken her over an hour to get from Shunem to Mount Carmel. And every second counts. As we know today, of being able to resuscitate someone. Every second counts. Within a minute, minute, what is it, two million brain cells die when there's no oxygen? Every second counts. So you can imagine, as she's sitting on this donkey, it trying to go as fast as it can, and that emotional toil she has inside of her, thinking the promise is dead, the promise is dead. What I've longed for for so long is no longer here. Over an hour it would take. I go crazy just thinking for five minutes if something's not going right. I begin to just get super stressed out and my wife can attest those would be the times where it's like, you need to take a minute, go off by yourself for a little bit, get a breather. But over an hour, she's having to sit on a donkey thinking of this. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? So Kazi goes, and she answers again, all is well. And when she came to the mountain of God, she caught hold of his feet. So imagine this. She's climbing the mountain, and when she sees him, she thrusts himself at his feet. Imagine the desperation that you would have to have to throw yourself at someone's feet on a mountain. Gehazi came and tried to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, 
and has not told me. And then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? So we see again, Elisha is trying to have Gehazi be a mediator between him and the Shunammite woman. But she knows that it must be Elisha and Elisha only that she speaks with, that she tells what has happened. The one that gave her the promise of the son. And then again, when Ghazi asks, she says, all is well. In, in Elisha's response, again, the, the New American Translation has a slightly different wording of it that's a little bit more powerful. Let her alone for her soul. Her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. See, Elisha, he had a great gift of discernment. You can see so many times where something happens and from far away he knows already because the Lord had gifted him with a great gift of discernment. But even when seeing her in the distress that she was, he couldn't fully know until she had vocalized to him what was wrong. She was in tremendous emotional pain, so much that even her soul, her very being, was aching. Then she finally tells the one in whom gave her the promise of the child, the very source of her anguish. And so imagine, imagine that as she says, did I ask you for a son? The one thing that I had longed for my whole life, did I ask you for that? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Do not lie to your servant. This is the one thing that I so desperately desperately wanted. Did I not say, do not deceive me? Imagine that pain and heartbreak that was in her voice. And he said to Kazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Again, it's now the third time Elisha's trying to have Gehazi be a mediator. But then the mother of the child says, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave your side. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the child, on the face of the child. 
but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. There are a couple of schools of thought when it comes to this portion of scripture. Um, You'll see with Elijah, there are actually many times where he has Gehazi go and he will utilize the staff of Elisha. And many people would would believe that uh, they had the faith that, yes, the power of Elisha, the power of God, was actually in the staff. And so some people believe that the Shunammite woman actually was lacking faith, that the staff alone would be able to revive her promise. But I think it's a different approach. See, I think for her, she was absolutely resolute on having the one that gave her the promise be the one to come and to bring him back to her. Where she knew that the power was not necessarily in the staff, but with Elisha. can't necessarily say I blame her. I don't know if I would want the one who gave me a promise to just have a mediator go and to lay the staff on my promise's face and to bring it back. I understand where she's coming from of wanting to have the one that gave her that promise to be there. And when Elijah came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. And so he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself out upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. In our current COVID world, this would, uh, well, actually just in general, uh, I don't know if I would want to lay face down on a dead body either, matching mouth to mouth, face to face, hands to hands. (sighs) But Elisha did. And when he did the first time, the promise begins to show a little life. I think it's important also to see that first Elisha was pursuing the Lord first. He was praying to the Lord before he does anything. And then he got up again and he did it a second time. Walking back and forth in the house, and he went up and stretched himself upon the child. So he's repeating the process, seeking the Lord again for the revival of the promise, and then laying himself mouth to mouth, face to face, hands to hands. The child sneezes seven times and then opens his eyes. 
again, gross. <laughs> I don't necessarily like it when my own little kids uh, sneeze in my face, especially if I happen to be talking to them. Kind of feel like I need to brush my teeth. <laughs> and they're laughing because they know it. But in my flesh, I'm like, oh. I love you girls. And then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. And so he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, picked up her son and went out. These last five verses are so powerful. And there's so many different layers within it. You see, first, we see what has appeared to be a very distant Elisha, constantly trying to have Gehazi be a mediator first, display a level of empathy that we hadn't quite seen yet. See, he isolated himself in the room of the child. And we could think of a dead corpse. I don't know how many people have been in the room with a dead corpse before. It's not a fun feeling. It's haunting. It's not great. But he isolates himself in the room, in the room that was built for him. In the room with the dead promise that he had given. And like I said, he first prays. He prays to the Lord for the child, for the promise. And then he lays himself completely on the child, which in the Jewish context still would have, we see it as unclean, it really would have been ceremonial unclean for a, for a Jew to touch a dead body like that, in that manner. Matching mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, and hands to hands. And he does it not once, but twice. And then finally, on that second time of praying, pursuing the Lord, and then being so close to the dead promise. It finally happens. The promise comes back. The child sneezes seven times and then opens his eyes. And when we see the number seven in the scriptures, it's something that we should really hone in on because there's significance in that number. You see, we'll often see the number seven with association of holy works of God. It's associated with completion, with healing, and get this, the fulfillment of promises and oaths. So we see that the final fulfillment of the promise 
actually wasn't when the child was first born, but when the dead child sneezes seven times and then comes back to life. The final fulfillment of the promise that was given is finally fulfilled. But not only was it the fulfillment of a promise, but it's in the way, it's in the way that this ends. The promise starts with, you will embrace a child. And then it ends with her bowing down in reverence and then finally embracing the promise again. It starts with an embrace and it ends with an embrace. I've had a few prophetic words or promises given to me in my life. Mostly it has to do with, with ministry, with callings. And there was a time where I was beginning to see those promises finally come to life. You know, I was a worship director at the church that I had given my life or rededicated my life in. I was writing songs that the church was doing, which was one of the prophetic words that was given. I was helping to shepherd a great team of musicians. Props to you guys. But I, I was seeing the fulfillment of those promises. And then when I was removed from it, and I've mentioned this before, there was like a fissure that cracked open inside of me. And I could begin to see those promises what appeared to die in my very lap. That they were slipping through my fingers. And I can vividly remember the confusion and the sense of loss. So I, I don't know what every single person in here is going through. I don't know what promises have been made to you, what prophetic words have been given. I have the gift of discernment, but not to that extent. I don't know how many of you feel like the promise is sitting in your lap and it's beginning to die. It looks like life is fading. Or if that promise, for all intents and purposes, has already died. But there are a few things that I do know. One is that God is faithful to his people and that he brings his promises to pass. Maybe you don't feel like this promise is ever, ever going to come. But if it's a promise from the Lord, it will come to pass. Know that he will never leave you and that he is with you. 
I also know that sometimes we might need to act more like this Shumanite woman. And what I mean by that is if we're given a promise, we need to actually contend and fight for it. We need to be pursuing the Lord for those promises because of the promises that he's given to us. To pray to God for those promises to pass so that we can embrace them and give God the praise he deserves because he is always faithful to us even when we haven't always been faithful to him. And to have the faith to say and believe, like the Shumanite woman, it will be well. Even when it appears that the promise has died. It will be well because he is faithful. Don't leave your promise dead in another room without first seeking the Lord for it, without first contending and fighting for it. But the other side of that is we actually need to be holding these promises in humble hands. Humbly hold them. Because we need to remember Ultimately, who was the one that gave us that promise? It wasn't Micah Thorner in our dorm room at Bible College. It wasn't the pastor I don't even remember the name of up at a church in Tumwater, Washington. It wasn't my mentor's father, Steve Gans, in the second campus of the church that we had built in Kelso, it wasn't either of those people. It was the Lord that gave me those promises. And it's not the person that spoke those promises to you. It's the Lord that gave you those promises. Remember that he is the sovereign God who gave you the promise. That even though he may have given us the promise, ultimately it is still his promise. We need to remember that we should be always pursuing the blesser because he is our king, not because he is going to give us a blessing. It is because he is our king and our Lord. And also don't do what I did. Don't place the promise on a pedestal in which you find your identity. See, that alone is only found in Christ. The promise may just be an added bonus, but it's not where your identity really lies. And I think for me, that's what the Lord had to break me from was I was beginning to place the identity of who I was in the promise that was being fulfilled rather than staying rooted in Christ and that the blessing or the promise was just an overflow of who I am in him. And if you don't feel like you have a promise, 
I promise you that we actually all have a promise in common. Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If we truly believe in who Jesus is, he will not leave us in the darkness. He will pull us out and bring us to light. We all, as believers, have that. And as the Shunammite woman said, I dwell among my people. Even if you don't have another prophecy or a promise given, that is enough. That he is pulling us out of darkness and into light is enough. As uh, Elijah and Jason come up for to be, enter us into worship, I want us to just sit for a minute. And if you feel like God has given you a promise and you're not seeing it come to pass or it seems like for all purposes it's no longer going to be a thing, where you're sitting, I want you to fight for it. Contend for it. Seek the Lord for it. Allow Him to bring what will come to pass because He is faithful. Allow Him to do what it is that He does because it's not by our might that the promise will come. But it's in His timing. And if it feels like it's dead and gone, again, fight for it. Don't just leave it dead in the upper room. Fight and contend for it. And ultimately, whatever the Lord says comes to pass, comes to pass. Maybe for me, the one of the promises was only for a short period of time. Am I going to have the faith like the Shunammite woman and say, it is well? And that now I am content with where you have me, God. Am I good to just dwell among my people? Pursue the blesser, not just the blessing. So let's sit, let's close our eyes. Prepare our hearts. Prepare our spirit, our soul. And within, begin to pray for that promise. Begin to ask, Lord, be totally vulnerable with him. Name what that promise is in your heart, in your, in your soul. 
and begin to just wrestle for it. Like, God, I don't know why this seems like it's gone. I don't know why it seems like it's not coming. But God, let me pursue you. Let me sit at your feet in your presence. I know it will be well. I know that you will bring it to pass. Because you are so faithful to your people. Let me just sit and wait on your timing. Let me chase after you. Not just for the promise, but the one that gave the promise. It is well, it is well, it is well. Even if I just have you, Lord. All is well.